You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to XYZ, the podcast about CNC, automation, robotics, business, and more. My name is Aaron Goff, owner of Goff Custom Knives, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Frank, from the Frank Brothers Guitar Company. How are you, mate? Hey, pal. I'm good. That's good. What have you... Well, I was going to say, what have you been up to? But I know what you've been up to, because I was just hanging out with you at CMTS the other day. Yeah. Which was the a Canadian, blast. Yeah. So for those that don't know, it's the Canadian Manufacturing Technology Show. And um, I was pretty sure Nick was going to walk out of there with a five-axis. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that the uh the salesman thought so too. Yes, you were tie kicking hard on that uh what was it? It was a Matsura five Matsura, axis mill uh, with a pallet changer. It was uh my future Matsura MX three thirty uh PL ten. Right. So that's a ten pallet pool. <laughs> ten pallet five axis machine. Hunt was a hundred tools, right? Ninety. Nine well. Pff. Those are pleb, pleb numbers. Yeah, yeah, triple digits at least, right? It was a very, very cool looking machine. It was the coolest machine at the show, in my opinion. Other than mm-hmm. maybe that grinding machine, the Haas grinder, not related to Haas uh, automation that we know. Yeah, but... so t- there's a Haas automation that we know in, in the United States, and it turns out there's another company called Haas that also makes CNC machines in Germany. Mm-hmm. But they make like um, super high-end grinders. Yes, so that grinder we were looking at, just just imagine, yeah, I guess it looked kind of like a VMC, mm-hmm. but it can mill and grind. It's actually a HSK spindle. Well, it's more like a, um, a mill turn, yeah. I'd yeah, say. It's, yeah it's exactly, like I guess. Turn. Yeah. Um, but small-ish. Well-ish. What, it's still, it was still like 20 feet wide. Um, and yeah, just beautiful like the surface finishes coming out of this thing were bananas like straight up mirror finishes um for the low low price of eight hundred thousand to 1.4 million Mm -hmm. i mean if bell is making helicopter uh gears on it Mm -hmm. it's probably got to be hold some pretty tight tolerances but i was like when i saw those finishes i was like man (laughs) aaron this is the machine for you Oh yeah, and it would absolutely make uh, some very nice knives, but I don't think I uh, can justify that. Yeah, um, but yeah, the Matsuro was just such a cool machine. I mean, five, just seeing five axis run is a trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what what we do you use a five axis machine for? Like we have some guitar parts that I mean I never like I don't think we need a five axis. We have some guitar parts that like are proprietary to us right. that we want to bring in house. Um, I think that that's totally doable with a you know a three axis mill with a maybe a, a, a fourth axis trunnion like a, a rotary, right? And just you put positional, right? 
So three plus one. Yeah. Right. But have you thought about bringing them in-house on your current house? Like, why not do that? Uh, well, we're going to with some of the brass parts. Right. Um, we don't want to run coolant in our machine. Yep. Uh, I suppose we could do some aluminum parts in that with just an air blast. Yeah, but... and brass with an air blast is totally fine. Yeah, um, brass I don't think will be an issue. Yeah, honestly, my experience with um, aluminum has been actually pretty good without coolant. Like, mm -hmm. if you run fairly conservatively and you run coated tools, um, zirconium nitride didn't work terribly well for me, but DLC coated tools, like with a high polish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah high polish. Yeah. Yeah, machining aluminum is totally fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, we machine a little bit of metal on uh, the axes. <laughs> oh, really? On your router? Yeah. I made um I made brass pickup rings mm, last okay. week and a brass pickguard. Oh, cool. Uh, the one thing we don't have is dedicated tooling for it. Right. <laughs> so, uh, that's it. Just it's a little bit not not great. But these are parts that are getting sanded and polished after. So, like right. edge finish wasn't the highest priority. Getting it done was the priority right. and they turned out nice. I actually have to remake the pick guard cause, um, I, po I polished the brass myself and it's gotta be a mirror. It's getting Chrome. Right. So it just did not polish up. Well, like just, my, our buffer is low RPM meant for polishing lacquer. Mm. And it's just in the, I didn't want to put a heavier duty, like a heavier cutting compound on it. Uh, because we use it for polishing, other things like frets and stuff right. we, we have a pretty light compound on it so i just couldn't get this the, the nice glossy surface that i need so i actually ended up going on mcmaster and buying mirror like uh, oh, wow. brass cool and did it actually arrive and it's like a mirror <laughs> it's pretty good it's better mm -hmm. than the surface i had interesting so i Very think it'll cool. be fine yeah um mcmaster's the rescue once again yeah, but anyways, CMTS was a blast. Saw some really cool stuff. You said it was a little bit like not as uh, maybe busy or there wasn't as many people um, displaying. I would usual. say it was about half the size or a third of the size of the previous shows that I've been to. Wow. At that same it venue. Was still, it, it was still fairly lively. Like I've been to like the, the music industry trade show, NAM in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. It's insane. It's like a million yes. square feet. Right. Um, but I thought I thought I was pretty impressed with it. I thought it was actually going to be a little bit like, not, I mean, I didn't think there was going to be as many tools, mm, like big right. machines. No, yeah, in the past, like, you know, one time I went there previously and like DMG, just the DMG section of the show had probably like 12 machines. Oh, sick. You know, they had like multiple 5-axis machines on the floor making chips. Wow. Um, yeah, and that was one really weird thing too, actually, was this year, for some reason, no machines were making chips. Yeah, and I heard somebody, I heard one of them say, like one of the people working there, say that they weren't allowed to. Oh, this year. yeah, so I don't know why that would have been the case. Um, but yeah, as I said in the past, like, you know, like the Mori booth, like the DMG booth, I should say, like their machines are like spaceships, you know, and seeing them <laughs> yeah. like, a whole bunch of them in one place was pretty nuts. Like they had, they had Milton's, they had the five axis machines, they had three axis machines. Like, yeah. So it, for me, this year was a little underwhelming, but it was very mm -hmm. cool. You know, we got to meet some great people, which was fantastic. We got to meet some listeners of the podcast, which was fantastic. Um, and it's just super cool going to a show with people that haven't seen that many machines. It really, you know, mm -hmm. brings back your sense of wonder. Oh, totally. I mean, I was mesmerized <laughs> by, by some of this machinery. Um, that the the five axis was definitely my favorite, but uh, just even mm -hmm. seeing like a, a robo drill. Yeah, that was cool. Actually, I, I I don't think no, that's not true. I have seen a robo drill once in person before. And yeah, they're just such cool, compact little machines. They're really compact. Uh, and fast. I mean, they weren't really pushing that one. No. 
but which like, is kind of funny given that they weren't making chips. You'd think you would just like yeah, set everything to a thousand percent. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But the the tool changers like just mind blowingly fast. Yeah. So I think personally, the coolest machine for me was the there was a Nakamura Tomei um, dual spindle lathe there. So I had primary spindle on the left, finishing spindle on the right. Um, dual turrets, you know, one per spindle, live tooling, and an automated parts loader and unloading system. And I couldn't get over how fast that parts loading system was moving. It was crazy. Yeah, that was a f- insane. Yeah, that was a very well. Very it was cool just the the rapids. The rapids were so fast. Um, yeah, which yeah, you don't actually, expect from this like automated parts loader like no, you don't expect like, that to be like mind-blowingly fast like it was at least 2,000 inches a minute or something like it, it was must really have been. i mean it was like it, it was all extruded aluminum with like a like rack and pinion gear mm. that moved it up and down but holy shit it was so cool <laughs> yes it was a good time it was very very cool i one thing i was super excited about was the um form labs um sls printer the fuse one they actually yeah, had that unit there for there. a while. Yeah. So I've been like keeping an eye on that printer for like five years. I was super excited to actually see one. Yeah. Which like, they, they also weren't doing demos with. Yeah. And that one I kind of understand because the, the, the powder from that system is really fine. It's like mm. printer toner almost. Right. Oh, so really? like, yeah. So if the, any gets into the atmosphere, it's just going to be floating around. Everyone's going to be breathing it in. Yikes. So if you had that at home or not home, but at your shop, how do you manage that? Because I know they have the little like, uh, it's all kind of contained, and then you yeah. break it apart in this uh, basically uh, vacuum booth. Yeah, it's like a little fume hood kind of thing. Fume hood, yeah, that's a better way to describe it. Yeah, I, I mean, the shops that I've seen running them, even with that, they're still like they would still have the powder processing in a separate room. With uh-huh, like okay. negative air pressure, and you're probably wearing a respirator while you're in there still. Like it is very, very fine stuff that that plastic dust. Um, I guess what did surprise me about it, and I'm you know I haven't thought about the ap- actual applications of a machine like that, is that you can only do one material, one color. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, what is you the don't... material? Like I, it, it, what are the properties of it? So it's nylon 12 was the first material that they released um, with that machine. Um, and in an, when it's like laser sintered together, it's, you know, a very sturdy, impact resistant, strong plastic. It's not like super rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find any kind of like mechanical parts that you couldn't make out of it. Right. You know, like the housing for like an impact wrench, like a, a cordless drill or whatever, that'd be totally fine. Oh, okay. Um, bike pedals, like that was an, uh, an application demo that they were doing a couple of years ago. It was like a whole thing full of bike pedals. Well, and they were showing um, um, like the uh, clasp for snowboard. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what you call it. Yeah, like the bindings for bindings. snowboard boots. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And, you know, those have a me- like a mechanical uh clasp yeah that i yeah, like a ratchet would, yeah a ratchet that would take some abuse if they were actually going to use them yeah yeah so i mean sls um you know you can get sls parts from lots of other um different suppliers and i've tested some sls parts in the in recent history and they're very durable um like mm-hmm. they're pretty impressive and they look fantastic is so what's uh remind me the brand that we saw uh so the one we were looking at was a form form labs form labs printer yeah so they are known for their resin printers mm-hmm. um so the form labs resin printers were kind of the ones that like i don't know introduced people to like relatively low cost uh resin printing i think and then right. the like really inexpensive Chinese made machines kind of came out after that um, and started becoming very popular. But before that, it was like, you know, you pay like 60 grand for like a 3D systems resin printer or like, you know, three grand for a form labs printer. And now you can get a resin printer for like 200 bucks, which is crazy. Oh, really? That cheap? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was cool. The other 
3D printer that we saw was 3D. It was uh, the 3D systems. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a neat machine. Yeah. One of the things that impressed me most about that was, you know, I kept like looking at this being like, holy crap. So they had a part that had been printed on this um, printer and they'd sent, you know, a file to it that was just like a straight kind of CAD model. And then in their um, slicer, in their like print preparation software, they'd actually textured it. Mm -hmm. That grabbed my attention too. And you, you just tell could not tell yeah. that it was 3D printed. Yeah. No, it looked it looked incredible. And it looked like that texture they they often give molded parts. Yeah. Yeah, like a hair cell texture. Yes. Yeah. Um Yeah, I and I've been trying to because because like my little resin printer can totally replicate that kind of a texture. But applying those textures is brutal like if somebody listening to this has you know knows like what kind of software you would use to add that texture onto you know a 3d mesh of a part i would love to hear about it because i've tried doing textures like in cad in fusion and i literally just like break fusion mm -hmm. because there's like so many surfaces that fusion just basically explodes um yeah, so that was really really cool seeing. Well, that. he said that they just had they had li a library of mm -hmm. textures. Yeah, and I my understanding is you just like you know click the surface, choose the kind of texture you want to apply, you know like the scale of the texture, how like deep it is, and then print boom. Yeah, you know like that's honestly that's um that's a really <laughs> like important thing that I think is kind of missing from resin printer slices at the moment yeah because it i mean it doesn't look bad seeing how it was printed like it the lines where it's laid down yeah but uh it looks like a 3d printed part and that's what yes. so mark has a form labs um resin printer and he printed a part for us and it looks really good like the surface is super clean yeah do you still see the layer lines a little bit? I, I haven't. I don't think I've looked for them. So I had. I didn't right. notice them. They didn't stand out to me. But it's also a like translucent green material. Mm. Uh, kind of so hides it a bit. Yeah, if it was like maybe black, you'd see it. Right. But I'll have yeah. A look one of it. the biggest one of the biggest differences between um, the Form Labs printers and like my Elgu Mars printer is the Formlabs printers use um, a laser. So they actually have like a, a UV laser that's steered around by a pair of mirrors that are controlled by galvos. So basically like ultra high speed servos that can like fling those mirrors around, you know, ridiculous speeds. Um, but that means that the system doesn't actually have any pixels. You know oh. what I mean? Like when it draws an outline of something, you know, it's moving from point to point, but because it's moving through those points at speed, it's perfectly smooth. Like oh. the, the outline of the part will be perfectly smooth. Right. Um, you might still see the layers in Z because, you know, it can't, it can't kind of do in between. Right. It's still stacking those layers. Yeah. It's still like stacking those layers up. Exactly. Um, whereas my little printer, it, because it, it's using an LCD screen to expose each layer, you definitely see the pixels in the X and Y. Yeah. Huh. Um, and, but that has pluses and minuses too, right? Like f for my little printer, it doesn't matter how full each layer is because exposing each layer takes the exact same amount of time. Whereas with a Form Labs printer, because it's having to steer that laser dot around, the more stuff that's in a layer, the longer the layer takes. Right. That makes right. some sense. What about that 3D? Uh, what was the brand? Uh, 3D Systems. 3D yeah, systems. so that 3D Systems printer we were looking at was like, I think he said it was like 25 grand mm -hmm. US. Um, and the print area was tiny. That was the thing that really got to me. I, I think he said that the print area was like three inches by four inches by six inches or something. Yeah, like, yeah. That's a, it's like a postcard. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of a bit of an in-between one. So that's what's called a DLP um, printer. So it actually uses almost like a projector. Um, so there's like a column, like a, a stand underneath the machine. And right down at the bottom of that stand, there's a, literally like a projector, um, like you would, you know, 
see in a, a movie cinema. Hmm. A movie cinema. Is that a thing? Movie theater. Ah, uh, movie theater. Um, <laughs> yeah, so those ha- have much less visible pixels, but they still kind of had pixels. You know? hmm. um, yeah, it's it's kind of amazing the all of the different 3D printing technologies that are out there now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're spoiled for choice, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are, like, the highest-end ones? You know, if you were saying, if you were, like, really wanted to... Spend be... some money? Yeah. Okay, so, if you want to talk about, like, end-use parts, I think probably the craziest printers out there right now are the printers made by a company called Carbon. Um. So they're a resin printer, but they, you know, a part that might take my resin printer three or four hours to print, a carbon printer would print that in potentially 10 minutes Hmm. or, you know, 15 minutes. And could it do Um, like multiple parts? Could it like nest parts? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Or you're usually doing like one part at a time. I guess it depends on the size. So basically what these printers do is... With most resin printers, like with the Formlabs printers, with my um, Elegoo printer, um, at the bottom of a vat, you have this like plastic membrane that the light is shining through. And then you have to peel the cured resin off that membrane and allow fresh resin to kind of flow in between the, the part and the, the membrane, which is why you see it like lift up the part and then put it back down. Uh-huh. Um, with the carbon printers, what they do is they have an oxygen permeable membrane at the bottom of the the vat. So oxygen can get through that membrane, but like fluid can't flow out from it. And oxygen actually inhibits the curing of the, the resin. So they basically pump like oxygen through that membrane to inhibit the, the curing of the resin. And then they shine the light through it. So the resin's actually curing like two or three millimeters away from that bottom membrane, which means that they can just continuously pull upward, changing the the kind of like uh, pattern of the curing light as they go. Huh. And they just like pull apart straight out of the resin. Okay, cool. Like in one one smooth motion, you know, right. it, it happens in, in slowly, you know, it's over the course of 10, 15 minutes, but it's continuous. Um. Whereas all the other resin systems kind of have to like move up and down, you know, moving the resin around, curing it, and so on. It's um, a cool looking printer. Looks kind of like a water cooler. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fancy water cooler. So the reason those printers are so expensive is because you can't buy one. You have to lease them, and they're oh. sixty grand US a year. Okay. Well, the... <laughs> my dog says hello. Oh, um, starting at twenty five. K per year. Oh, really? So I guess that they they either load their prices, or that's for a smaller one, or something. It might be uh, for the small. I mean, I imagine it's for the smallest one, which is right. five by three by twelve. X Y Z. Oh. Right. Yeah, I mean they're very very cool machines. I can see like you know future versions of that getting less and less expensive. Um, Twenty that... grand a year. That's in perpetuity. <laughs> Like, yep, that's kind of wild. Yep, but, but there are companies out there money off of it. Yes, if they own it. There might be some benefits to that. Like, you know, is that thing going to be under warranty the entire time that you're leasing it? Yeah, you would assume so. You better hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, something good about but that. There are companies out there that are like doing production printing of like uh, footwear, for instance. Um, using those carbon printers. So I think it was like Nike or Asics or one of those big companies were actually doing like a production model of shoe that had a 3D printed sole. Wow, that's kick-ass. Yeah, made on the carbon printers. Um, So as far as I can think of, that's probably like the largest scale, you know, like item that's 3D printed. Hmm. Makes some sense. But what about like metal printing and stuff like that? Are there any like machine tool manufacturers um, that are making serious metal printing machines or things like that? I think um, 
I think DMG actually does. Um, so this was actually at one of, yeah, at one of the previous CMTS um, shows, I actually saw DMG had a, um, a metal 3D printer there. So basically, it's a five-axis milling machine. Oh. Um, and you put the, um, like, a build plate in on the, on the table. And then it actually has, like, a, a separate unit that it can exchange for the spindle. So it, it has, like, a tool changer that swaps between the spindle and the laser additive head. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it has a stream of inert gas that's carrying, like, metal powder. Um, and then it has a laser going down the middle of this stream. So wherever the, the laser is kind of pointing on the, the build plate, when the metal powder hits it, it sticks and then gets sintered. That's sick. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's building up additively, you know, say like a rocket nozzle. And then it can come in afterwards and use five-axis machining to like machine critical uh, tolerances on that part right. in place. Right. Or like clean up like for surface finish. Exactly. Yeah, so if you go on YouTube and you look up like, uh, it's called Laser Tech, um, just spelled with one C. Because that's how the cool cool kids spell laser tech. Um, yeah, they that that machine is like God knows what the price tag on that thing is. But you know, if you had an application where that was like the way to do it, then yeah, I, I can't see too many other options. Yeah, so additive and subtractive manufacturing all in one. Yeah, enclosure. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I was kind of, I guess I, I was expecting to see some pretty like innovative technology there at right. CMTS, which I suppose we did. I mean, we saw like some wicked robots and stuff. Um, I don't think I saw anything that I didn't maybe expect to see. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, and I guess it is just like that, you know, the, the big companies are, I think kind of hesitant about like traveling in between countries and stuff mm-hmm. right now and you know hesitant about how many people are going to attend a show like cmts right now mm-hmm. um yeah because you know as i said in in a previous cmts um exhibit like i saw you know all of these machines from dmg Hermley was there with crazy five axis oh, machines wicked. um you know ultrasonic spindles and stuff um yeah, there was. It's definitely been a lot bigger in the past, and hopefully, it'll be a lot bigger again in the future. Is it a yearly thing, or is it like uh, every second years? year? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's I did just see for them to you know move all that machinery and equipment in there. And yes, connect it to power. Yeah. It's a big job. I have I no idea how the logistics of all that works, but I did just see um, John Saunders was at. Um, like the worldwide kind of manufacturing tech show. Oh, yeah, called, what's that one um, called? EMO. Uh, EMO, EMO yeah. Order. Yeah, in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, he has some stuff. This year. Oh, it was, yes, in Italy. Um, he has some videos up on his Instagram and photos and stuff, and I'm sure he'll be releasing a YouTube video about that soon. But that's definitely a bucket list thing. Because, like, you know, in the past, I've seen videos of him at, ammo in previous years and people had brought like um five axis bridge mills that you could like park a car in oh they yeah, brought them sick. to the show yeah, you know? yeah like stuff like that is super super cool um so yeah maybe well i mean going to italy doesn't sound like such a bad time I'm sure we could arrange i mean that. For, we got to do it for the podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah then it's a business expense right <laughs> um that would be sweet, though. That would be a lot of fun, I bet. So what's happening uh, at your shop? Well, one exciting thing is that I'm actually running lights out right now as we speak. Oh, really? Um, right now? Yes. I can, I can. So I have a couple of security cameras in my shop. One of them is pointed to the machine. I can uh, pull it up, make sure it's not on fire. <laughs> but yeah, so um, you can hear it. Ooh, yeah. So one of the reasons that I wasn't running lights out for the last like year or so is because, you know, as I've said many times, my neighbor lives in his unit. He sleeps like right next door to the machine. And 
so that meant I was always turning my air compressor off every night before I left the shop. Um, you know, cause you have like tiny little air leaks, whatever. And the compressor would cycle on every, you know, couple of times an hour, probably maybe twice an hour. Um, and it's not super loud, but it's loud enough that it would wake him up, you know? So I had been planning this big thing where I was going to like, you know, have a little machine to press the off button on my compressor, blah, blah, blah. I hadn't done that. And I went looking for another solution. I was like, is there something easier? You know? Oh, it turns out McMaster have a programmable shutoff valve for compressors. Um, it's made by some like, Swedish company and this thing is amazing. It's for it's compressors. So yeah, it's literally all it does is just like connects to your compressor and it has a server operated bowl valve and then you you program it so you say, you know, Monday 9am turn or like open the the valve. Monday 11pm close the valve. Like and yeah, so I just like programmed it. This thing has like the nicest user interface of any microcontroller controlled device that I've ever seen. Yeah, you like, sent me a photo, and it looks it looks snazzy. Yeah, it was super super nice. I I didn't even read the manual. I was like, all right, let's see how far I get. No problems at all. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so now this thing is connected to my compressor. It opens the valve at ten a.m. every morning, closes the valve at eleven p.m. every day, and that means that I can start a cycle on the CNC and leave the shop, and I still know that you know my compressor is going to get turned off. It's there's not going to be anything in the shop making noise overnight. So yeah, I'm finally running lights out again, which is exciting. An elegant solution. Very, very simple, yeah. And it wasn't super expensive. I think it was like 270 bucks. Nice. Um, build quality super good. So yeah, that was very nice. Um, so yeah, that means today I'm getting three cycles rather than only two. And yeah. you know, my cycles are three hours, so that's fantastic. Yeah, congratulations, dude. That's huge. Thank you, sir. Um, so yes, I'm going to be expanding my efforts to run lights out over the next little while. Um, I have already, I don't know if we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, but I wanted to move all of my hard milling to one machine and mm -hmm. then separate all the G10 out to the other. Um, so that is a hundred percent in effect as it stands. Great. Um, and I am working on new fixtures for the kitchen knife, and that same principle is going to get moved over to the production of the Resolute as well. And then I kind of, you know, laid out some simple like CAD drawings to see what kind of density I can get, what kind of like uh, cycle time I can get. It looks like I'll be able to get two Resolutes and a kitchen knife um, on a fixture plate all at one time, and it'll be a 12 and a half hour cycle. Oh yeah. So I'll be able to like, you know, as long as I get there before like 10:30 in the morning, just hit the green button and then leave and it'll finish before 11 and then the compressor will shut itself off and beautiful. Now you've given yourself this 11 p.m. uh stop time, right? Yeah, That's not yeah. Mandated. I mean, it's just no, it's, it's just courtesy guys sanity. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Which I've been told by many people is uh, being too considerate, but you know, I like, mean, I would, yeah, but well, I mean, you're a nice guy, so fair enough. One of my friends phrased it, phrased it this way: um, "A little indifference to human suffering will always help you get ahead." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's on brand for this guy. <laughs> Okay, I mean, it's probably true. It's like the the you know nice guy never wins. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but yeah, it's super exciting to be running lights out again. I mean, uh, once I have my own shop and I can run twenty four hours a day, I am absolutely going to be doing everything I can to run twenty three hours a day. Okay, yeah. I have a question for you then. So, yeah. say, um, the guy. Uh, who lives in his welding shop <laughs> didn't live in his welding shop and yeah. you could make noise 24 hours a day. Would, would you be getting there at, at, uh, I don't know, I guess like nine, 10 AM loading parts, working a day, then leaving, letting it run till 11, then coming back and loading another no. pallet. No. So how, no, what, what would, what would be, the benefit of being able to run like another 12 hour pallet or what, what, like, could you even do that? 
Um, yeah, so basically, if I was like, you know, living right next to the shop, then obviously it gets kind of easier. But sure. in the current shop, I could still technically make a fixture. Um, I believe, at least, I could make a fixture that would fit two kitchen knives and two resolutes. And then the overall machining time would be like uh, something closer to 18 hours, 19 hours. Mm. Um, and then, you know, that's that's assuming that I'm like, kind of trying to run fast you know if 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 you've got 24 hours a day available then i don't think that optimizing for exactly 24 hours is actually the best strategy because that means that you have like no dead time between cycle end and cycle start in order to like fix things change tools be running late you know whatever so 22 hours or 23 hours is probably the best best Goal. Yeah, even still, you really only have one narrow window where you can catch the machine when the spindle's not running. Yeah, but that's fine. You know, it's kind like of, if it's you, kind of sweet because it's like, oh, I, I know this is the only time of, I have to be at the shop. Yeah, exactly. And then honestly, like, so if I got to the point where you know I could run twenty four hours, but I'm only running a seventeen hour cycle time or something, then what I would do at that point is just go through and tweak all of my finished tool parts to get the surface finish better and better um, and take a little bit longer, you know, until it's taking up 22 hours and I'm getting like the best surface finish that I can fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would press the green button every day and walk away. It'd be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Do some other stuff. Mm -hmm. So one thing I will say, one thing that's a little, little sad um, is that I have been having more tools blow up on me. Damn. Um, which is really unusual and unexpected because previously with this process, I've never, ever seen premature tool failure. I've only ever seen, you know, tools wearing out and overheating parts. I've never seen like tools actually blowing up, losing their flutes, losing their corners. And I've seen all of that over the last couple of weeks. And where, so where is it doing that? Like what part in the, is it just random or is it happening in the same place? It's happening in kind of the same area. So there's... Operation two and operation three, I'm high feed milling. I'm basically high feed milling a slot to cut off the, the profile of the blade, if that makes sense. Okay. And can you describe high feed milling? This... Yeah. So high feed milling, you're basically taking very small step down. Mm-hmm. So only like two thousandths, two and a half thousandths in my case. Um, but you're taking quite a large chip load. So you're running relatively low RPM and a, a high feed rate. So I'm running oh, okay. 2,780 um, RPM. I'm running 80 inches a minute. So that that's with an eight flute tool. So that works out to be, I think it's like one and a half, two thou chip load per flute. Right, which I guess is a pretty is pretty big for such, like having so many flutes. Yes, and also in hard steel. True. It, it's pretty big. Like if you were high feed milling, um, you know, soft steel, then you would go even bigger. You would take like 10 thou per flute, 5 thou per flute. Um, and still very low axial step down. And the idea of it is that it, it puts the cutting forces straight up the tool as much as possible, straight mm. up into your spindle. So in situations, if you were like high feed roughing a mold cavity or something, uh, where you have to have a long tool, then rather than having radial forces that are trying to push your tool sideways, you have axial forces that are pushing the tool straight up in a very rigid, you know, dimension. Right. Because uh, for there to be chatter, that means you'd have to compress the whole tool rather than like bend it. Right. So it's, it's not a lateral force thing. It's all that force is going. Yeah. Straight vertical, basically. Um yeah, and so it, you can actually use any tool that has a sufficiently large corner radius. You can use as a high feed tool, um, assuming that you're take taking a small enough axial step down. So like, um, yeah, like step down rather than step over. Um, so yeah, I've just been having these failures in this operation, um, and I think that it's because of the hydraulic tool holders, unfortunately. Oh, for real? That's the only yeah. variable. That's that's the variable that's, uh, you know, come in and, and, you know, after I changed to hydraulic, I started seeing these failures. So there's two reasons why that could be um, the cause. One, 
the hydraulic tool holders are almost an inch longer than my ER tool holders that I was using for the same job. Mm. And, you know, having extra gauge length means that you've got a longer lever acting on your spindle. You know, so any forces are going to be able to cause the spindle to deflect more. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. And then number two is that hydraulic holders can't clamp all the way. And I didn't actually know this until I'd already bought a hydraulic tool holder. And then I started seeing some fretting around the, the nose of the tool. But hydraulic tool holders can't clamp all the way um, to the end of the the clamping ball, which is the end of the um, sleeve. Mm -hmm. So you actually have a section inside the tool holder that's supported but not clamped. If that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we already discussed this in the previous episode, but um, it surprises me that that's the case. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, it just, I guess in this case, it just means that you have, you know, extra unsupported tool length or extra unclamped tool length. You have, you know, a longer gauge length as well. So, yeah, I ended up changing that operation back to some ER25 collet holders that I've been using previously. And all of a sudden, the operation's quieter. Um, I haven't had any issues. Uh, granted, I've only run uh, like four or five cycles since making that change, but I haven't had any issues with um, tools exploding. <laughs> and I'm previously with the hydraulic holders, I was only getting three parts per tool, and I'm already up to five <laughs> with the ER collets. Mm. And I'm not seeing any signs of wear yet. So. so what would the hydraulic tool holder be good for? Well, I will say it was by far the best um, tool changeover experience I've had with any tool holder. You know, like... Like loading just, a tool into it? Yeah, just like yeah. loosen off the set screw to release the hydraulic clamping, take the tool out, put a new tool in. It You know, there's a set screw in the tool holder. So, you, or, you know, you have your like stick out already set. And then you just tighten it back up again. And you can like literally do this in your hands. Like you don't need like a Cat 40 um, fixture or anything, right? Right. The, the yeah, that's insane. Are so reasonable. Like, and then you just put it back in the, like you could literally do the whole operation in the spindle. Right. You know? So I think for like finishing operations um, or stuff where you're using a bigger tool. So if I was using like a half inch tool, then having a little bit of extra unsupported length wouldn't be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a shame that they haven't worked out in my, in my application, but I don't really regret buying them. I don't know that I'll keep them because I don't think I'll use them much. So will but, you sell them? Yeah, I probably will sell them. Hmm. Um, just because like, there are lots of other things, you know, lots of other tool holders I've got kicking around that, are, you know, I don't necessarily use that much, but I know I'll find an application for them. With the hydraulic holders, for me, it's like my roughing holders and my finishing holders are the same holders. Like I don't, I don't keep them separate. So I don't think it makes a ton of sense for me to like hang on to them. You know? How many did you buy? Just two. Oh, okay. So um, you're not in it I, that deep. Yeah. No, it was worth trying. I've always wanted to try them, and you know, I think if you were, yeah, if you had like a dedicated finishing tool, dedicated finishing tool holder, then as I said, like they're just the process of like changing them over is so nice. Like, yeah. If so you, if it's if it's a high, like high turn changeover tool, yeah, or like a very high accuracy tool that isn't seeing a ton of load, mm -hmm. then yeah, absolutely. But for me, you know, I'm using the same tool holders to rough and finish, and I'm actually leaving the tools in the tool holders when my finishing tool becomes my roughing tool. So okay, yeah, that makes some sense. That's I'm just moving them. Smart. Between pockets, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, it doesn't make a ton of sense. But yeah, so now I have to work out how to stop chips from getting inside my ER collets and screwing <laughs> up my collets. Your tape, the tape, didn't that work? Yes. So I sent Nick a photo the other day of an ER collet holder covered in masking tape. <laughs> like I just literally taped the whole nose of the tool holder up. And yeah, I'm doing the, that exact same thing, but you know, it's time consuming and it's, yeah. it's stupid. What about hot glue? Hot glue? What? Yeah. Pipe some hot glue onto the, uh... <laughs> oh yeah, that's going to go well. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, there are ER collet knots out there that are actually like meant for coolant sealing, and they right. have um, they have like an O ring. They have like a sized ball that seals around the tool with an O ring. Yeah, so I might end up buying some of those like ER coolant sealing ER collet nuts. Um, see what the deal is there. Yeah, I, like I haven't found anything that's been more versatile than ER holders and yeah. ER collets. But in my application, because I get hard chips inside the collets, that's brutal. I, I just kind of kill them, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'd be what very curious how... to know how the the coolant sealing ones go because I looked into that, but I wasn't sure if they completely seal it off. Right, so you can get coolant sealing collets, yeah, and they don't they don't actually seal off the front of the the collet. Mm-hmm. Basically, they have like a a special design that you know provides a metal seal for the coolant, but it doesn't stop chips from getting in the front of the collet. Um, but you can actually get collet nuts that are oh the collet sealed. Yeah, so the the front of the collet nut has a um a very close tolerance recess that like a washer fits into from the inside. Uh, and that washer is actually available in a whole bunch of different bore sizes. And then it has an O-ring that slides around the shank of your tool. And where where did, did you find those? Uh, I think it was a Technics product. Okay. All right. That's easy then. Um, so I'd have to look it up again. But yeah, like I... My understanding is that ER collets in a particular size are basically standardized across manufacturers. So theoretically, I should be able to buy a marital ER holder and then just buy like the co- the coolant sealing nut and, and washer assembly. Right, like the thread is the same? Yes. Right, yeah. that makes some sense. Uh, that, that'd be great. I'd be very interested in that for my applications. Yeah, because you you get your collets packed full of dust, and I get my yeah. collets full of metal chips. So yeah, then dust gets like you know it's uh, it it can get compacted and cause issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean at least in your application you can like unscrew the nut. It's not going to like screw up the, the yes. collet and then just blow it out. Yeah, it's super easy to clean. I've even like just chucked them into uh, like a little. Uh, bath of acetone or alcohol mm. to clean right, it. Right, right. Yeah, and the, honestly, I would do the exact same thing. The problem is, in my case, is if there's any like chips left inside the slots of the ER collet, when you loosen the collet off, they get wedged in between the um, the taper of the tool holder or the collet nut and the ER collet and score everything up. Mm-hmm. And it's like impossible to get them all out before you actually loosen the tool off. So Right. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's a super fun time when you like, like, I actually had, um, I don't know if I talked about this on the show, but I actually had a tool holder bind. Like, I guess a chip just happened to get in just the right place that it raised a burr on the inside of the the contact face on the collet nut. And then that kind of cut into the collet itself, raised more of a burr, and then the whole thing just self-destructed. Like, I actually yeah. couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't get it apart. I had to use a massive cheetah bar, and I eventually got it, like got the nut off, and it toasted um, the nut and the collet. But the tool holder's fucked. The tool holder was also fucked. Yeah, actually. Oh, it was. It, no, yeah, it ended up shearing the threads. Oh like my the, god! The torque was so large, it actually sheared the outside threads off the tool holder, and then ground that into the nut as well. Wow, that's expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that was painful. So, uh, what did you call it? A cheetah bar? A cheater, cheater bar. You know, cheater like you bar. Just, yeah, you you just put like a pipe over the end of your wrench right, right, right. to give you more. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never heard it called that before. Oh no. Cool. Yeah, well, I, I when I um I was tightening the leveling feet on Millie, one of my machines, and someone had like let the the threads in there rust or something. Uh-huh. And so this one leveling foot was like stuck, like hardcore stuck. So I, the Allen, it's like a like a half inch um, hex head, like the the Allen key is like a half inch <laughs> Allen key. Sure. So I had that plus a six foot steel bar. Oh wow! On the end of the Allen key to get it to move. 
<laughs> I think that was the most fun I've had so far. Uh, that's some serious leverage. Mm-hmm. What about you? Holy, holy shit, we've gone this whole time just talking about my shop. What about you? What's new in your oh, shop? Oh, well, you got interesting stuff happening. Um, we had a, our newest employee start on Monday, which was funny because I was, you know, I Not left there. at like 11. Right. I get a call from you or message being like, I'm outside. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I haven't even left. Oh, you were at work before <laughs> that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, uh, you were like right waiting in the rain for me. It was very, very sad in my very mind. Sad. Charlie Brown. Yeah. Um, so anyways, started Monday. So far, so good. Great. Like Excellent. great, great fit, uh, which is always kind of scary. You know, if it's like somebody's going to yeah. like be a cultural fit, like fit. Because, you know, we've talked about this before. Shop or like work cultures is so important. Um, yes, and you and Tim have a very distinct sense of humor, and if people don't laugh at it, then I can't see it going well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know how much of that comes off on, in the show, but, uh, you know, it, we like a laugh. But, uh, yeah, super cool guy, um, and uh, good hand skills. So, I mean, it's it's still so early, but, like, he's, I think it's going to be a good fit. Uh, Fantastic. It's yeah, it's exciting. It's always exciting bringing somebody on new. Yeah, totally. Um, it's and cool. it's a chance to see all of your processes with fresh eyes, you know, to find the the stupid things that you just have gotten used to. It's a good point. Um, I mean, and um, I hope that we have we have created an environment where, our, you know, the people working there can maybe feel free to put their own spin on a task or, or improve a task. I think that's, that's really a, like, that's a lead yeah. principle, constant improvement. Um, yeah. And they, you know, one of those things like Toyota things is uh, you're not, you're, you know, the, if you're working at a station, you're not making that part, you're making that process faster and more efficient. Yes, yeah. you're making yeah, the part, 100%. but that's not really the goal. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I always just make a point of saying to people, like, if you think something is stupid or, you know, you don't know why something is done a certain way, like, ask, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, if that can't be explained to you, <laughs> then you either need to work out how to explain it or, like, fix that stupid thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, we, you know, we, we might have blinders on in certain for certain, you know, certain tasks, like we're just so used to doing it a certain way or yeah, everybody you know, does. We also, I mean, like you are pretty much self-taught. So right. you sort of, you develop whatever habits you've developed and maybe they're bad. Maybe you don't even know that. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, um, that, uh, Tim's doing is being pretty, um, upfront about, how we do things so one example is like the way he's chamfering the fret ends he right. if it's a if it's a right if he's chamfering the fret on the right side he uses his right hand and he actually switches to his left hand to chamfer on the fret on the left side which hmm. seems awkward and uncomfortable but it's way faster so he's right. insisting that that be the way it's done because ultimately you will get good at it and it is more efficient. And so that's something he's uh, implemented, teaching right. the, this uh, new employee. So I think, it's, I, think, I think that's a really interesting tactic. So it's like... The, yeah, there are definitely some like hand skill things that you learn through hundreds of hours of repetition mm -hmm. that, yeah, it, it totally makes sense to pass that stuff on when yeah. you can. Yeah, it puts you out of your comfort zone, maybe, and it's kind of uncomfortable to maybe force somebody to do something a certain way when it feels uncomfortable. But, uh, yeah, I think he forced himself to do it this way himself. So, yeah, it's, I, I just thought that was an interesting tactic, you know, because yeah. often, you know, it's like, okay, if, you're, if I'm showing somebody how to use a jointer, like, you're using it this way. There's no... There's no uh, freestyling, <laughs> you know. It's right. a dangerous 
machine. Uh, but there's other things. It's like, you know, you hold the guitar in a way that's comfortable to you. I'll show you how to do that, but like you can, you can develop that sort of comfort uh, in a different way than maybe I did it. I, right. And I hold it. You know, people are different heights or they have different like arm spans. So, you know, you just kind of, it's awkward for somebody to hold a, like the guitar in a different position when you're sanding it than maybe I, you know, the way I do it. So sometimes yeah, totally. I just let people sort of figure it out. Yeah. So I remember, um, I think I've said to you that I worked for a guitar manufacturer in Australia. Mm -hmm. Might have, I'm not sure if I mentioned that on the podcast too much, but yeah, it was very interesting. Like working there, we were doing a lot of bench work. So doing um, scraping, um, you know, so the binding would get glued to the guitar and then we were scraping the binding flush with the, um, the back and sides and so on. And using scrapers that are made from old bandsaw blades that have been run in the factory. And they had this setup where, you know, every bench had like a big rubber kind of pad on the front corner of the bench. And then the way they taught you to, to kind of clamp the, the guitar while working on it was just to put it in between your body and the bench and just lean on it. <laughs> um, and it worked really well, you know, <laughs> and that, again, that's one of those things that you might not um, work out for a very long time if someone didn't just show you, like, just do this. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. super easy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so another example is something like, uh, when we install our binding, we're inlaying it into a channel and we use mm -hmm. a hammer. And for like the entire time we've had this business up until like two years ago, we've been doing it this way pretty well. And I've been hammering it in just the way you'd think you use a hammer. Tap, 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 right. tap, tap. And we would occasionally get these inconsistencies where like maybe the binding would be actually tapped in a little too deep. It would like crush the wood. Mm. And you see it in the final guitar. And one day I saw Simon, who used to work with us, and he wasn't tapping the ham with the hammer. He was pressing on it and sliding around the binding, pressing it all down. And right. you could hear it, seat, click, click, click. Like, and I was like, oh, that's brilliant, because you're pressing it down just the exact amount that it needs to go down. Right. And that's how I've done it ever since. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, Honestly, I think that like craftsmanship and like making anything to a really high standard is like 10,000 of that moment. <laughs> yeah, totally. You yeah, know, you forget all the ones, all those little teaching moments that, that have happened. Yeah. But. yeah, and that's actually one of the things I, I mean, I've said this before, uh, not on the podcast, but other places. One of the things I love most about CNC is that like, you know, so... Uh, I'm sure you do this too. Like when a cycle's running, if I like hear a bit of an odd noise or, you know, I notice that like finish in one spot isn't as good as it could be, I'll like stand there and watch it, mm -hmm. watch it run. You know, I'm thinking about like what it's doing. And if I have an idea on how that part of the process could be better, I'll go and like change the program. And then the next time it runs, it's I'm going to run it with the new program. So like my CNC process is like, you know, hundreds or thousands of my best moments. Right. You know, like the, the the days where I'm feeling on and I've had an idea and I test it out and it works great, you know. So I love that every single time the machine runs, it's replicating that that thought. Yeah. You know, um, it's one of the really awesome things for me about automation. That's cool. I mean, and you, you get to keep that forever, really. I mean, there's certain hand processes <laughs> that, yeah, like if you haven't done it in a while, you kind of can maybe lose it a little. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, that's what we've been up to at our shop. We've been getting some new orders in, which is great, and um, had some really good, positive customer reviews. Awesome. And I think that if that's that's something we don't ask people to do, and we absolutely should be asking people to do. Because people are willing to, they're they're happy to, they want to share their experience. Yeah. And. All it takes is a quick little type on Google or Facebook or um, a, a uh, forum, and it does amazing yep. things for us. So <clears throat> we had a really generous customer who got his guitar recently, just go out, just blasted it everywhere, <laughs> you know, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. Uh, I think he did a Google, he definitely did a forum post, and right. 
in depth and he was like answering questions for people. Um, so that was awesome. And, uh, and then we also just like put it like his guitar was beautiful. Uh, it was like this, um, uh, I think we, what do we call it? Burnt Amber toned maple. And it looked like Koa, which is like this beautiful, um, hardwood that only grows in Hawaii, but right. it's very difficult to get right now. So we just toned it to look like Koa and it was pretty successful. Anyways, that was caught a lot of people's eye. And we also did this guitar that was uh, all white. It had gold sparkle binding, gold back painted acrylic parts. Uh, it was kind of modeled after this famous Gretsch called the White Falcon. Uh, mm. But we, instead of in the, on the White Falcon, they engrave on the back of the back painted pickguard uh, a falcon. Instead, right. we engraved a goose. The Canada goose. The Canada goose. <laughs> right. Um, which the customer, it was his idea. It was a wicked right. idea because it really made the guitar. Yeah. But it cool. was probably our most popular post that we've done on Instagram ever. Very uh, cool, man. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, that has been the most, those are some of the more exciting things that have happened other than getting to hang with you and um, Scott Hoadley. And yes, uh, Mike and Joseph, that was a good time. It was, yeah. CMTS was awesome. Yeah, we'll have to um, have to talk next week about. I have been experimenting with some extremely high performance plastics for a new version of my sheath that wow. could. So I made a version of my knife sheath the other day that operated completely fine while being immersed in boiling water. Okay. Why would you do that? <laughs> um, push so the main reason is just that like Kydex, the, the plastic that I normally use for my sheaths, um, it starts to try to return to its original shape. So I thermoform it and then I CNC trim it. Mm -hmm. But if you heat it up past about 70 degrees Celsius, it starts to try to return back to its original flat shape. Right. And it, it starts to like lose the the retention, the kind of snappiness that makes it useful as a sheath. Like the knife will still fit in there, but the sheath won't retain the knife super Ooh, hard. Yeah. Super well. Um, and I have only ever had one customer with this issue. But if you leave your knife in like your truck in the middle of a desert on a sunny day, <laughs> the inside of the of a, a car can get to like ridiculous temperatures. Um so I just, it's just been kind of one of those little like low pressure backburner projects where I was like, I wonder what I could, what can I change? What can I do to make a sheath survive like anything? Can I make a sheath that survives on the surface of the moon during daylight? That's like 130 degrees Celsius or more up there, you know? Um, what about minus 100 degrees Celsius? So I've just been kind of like mucking around with that. It's been a really fun low-key project cool so would it still be thermoformed yes yeah. so do you have to to bump up the heat oh yeah okay <laughs> like to the point where i'm using like my heat treat furnace oh shit the thermoforming <laughs> what yeah. can they, what kind of temperatures can this material withstand um so that i was playing with a different material the other day but one material i have um, mucked around with for the same purpose in the past is called altum um poly polyether imide and to thermoform that you're looking at like 500 degrees fahrenheit oh my god yeah um and the problem is that at that temperature the plastic has to be bone dry like you have right. to like vacuum dry the plastic before you form it because otherwise all of the moisture in the plastic expands and makes bubbles it almost turns into like a foam and yeah guess how i know that <laughs> Um, and the, the, the part that's shitty is that, you know, the materials for like one sheath in that plastic would be like over 20 bucks. Ooh. Um, so like a sheet of this stuff is like, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever. That'll make like six sheets. Um, so yeah, but it's super, it's just, a, you know, it's a very silly, super fun project, right? That's awesome. Okay. So question, if, if you were mm -hmm. to 3d print it out of like, say with the, the, Form Labs fuse is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. um, would because that's never that didn't have an initial shape. It's centered. 
it nothing to return to how would that be affected by heat you're a, you're a smart cookie yes that and that was exactly why i was investigating um sheets that were 3d printed i actually have a whole box like 20 or 30 sheets uh, at my house that were 3d printed and all sorts of different plastics including sls nylon from a machine similar to the fuse um and yeah it does work it just fails in some other ways hmm. So cool. I'm I've I've got a new plastic on the way that I'm excited about, uh, polyphenylene oxide, uh, which we'll see we'll see. It's supposed to be uh, perhaps an exciting middle ground between Kydex and that crazy Ultem stuff. And um, will it machine okay as well? Yeah, yeah. Even Ultem was pretty nice. I mean, I I had to make sure I was using fresh tools because, like, it, honestly, it's kind of mind-boggling that I didn't realize that the performance characteristics in plastics varied so wildly. Like with Kydex, you know, you just take a ruler and a sharp knife and score it and then just snap it, the, the sheet in half. Oh, really? With with Ultim, you know, I scored the sheet and I bent it like almost 180 degrees and it didn't snap. I was like, okay, so I, I scored it a bunch more times I bent, and it, it scored like halfway through and it still won't snap. Wow. And then I, you know, I scored it a bunch more and, and tried to snap it, and it did eventually break. But it it broke partly on the score line and then partly next to it. <laughs> so what do you need to you do know? then? You need to like saw it, bandsaw it, or something. Yeah, I basically need to saw cut it. Yeah. So like, it's it's pretty cool that there's a plastic out there that's that high performance. And I mean, you pay for it, <laughs> obviously, but like, right? Yeah, it's just super cool. Is this something McMaster sells? <laughs> Sure is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, I'll be definitely uh, mucking around with that a bit more. The material I was using yesterday was actually kind of a, a homebrew concoction. It was um, a, a thermally welded composite of chlorinated PVC and Kydex. Chlorinated PVC? Yeah. So that that's like a version of PVC that has higher temperature characteristics. And then I literally like put it in my um, my heat press that I normally use to like heat up the Kydex. I put that and a sheet of Kydex in at the same time and increase the temperature a bit and the heat and pressure um, while heating the plastic up so I could thermoform it also welded the two sheets together. <laughs> so then you actually ended up with two plastics that are thermally welded together. Um, the Kydex has the nice outside appearance um, and then the PVC on the inside is kind of providing the structure. Well, you, sorry, did you expect that to happen? Yeah, that's oh. what I wanted to happen. Oh, cool. Um, just trying to try it on a whim because I, I know Kydex, like if you heat Kydex, like two sheets next to each other, it'll bond together. I was like, I wonder whether the PVC will bond with the Kydex. And then hmm, it cool. Did. So, yeah, super cool. Um, so anyway, I just I can't even remember why I brought that up. But yeah, just another random thing I've been working on that we'll hopefully have more exciting stuff to talk about on that front next week yeah well maybe let's get back to it uh next week then sounds like a plan all right everyone well yeah th thank you as always for joining to us and joining us and listening to our crazy ramblings <laughs> uh yeah thanks again to scott for coming out to visit us at cmts that was awesome great to meet you and uh yeah hopefully we'll be meeting more of you in the future yeah, sounds like uh, that'd be a good time. All right, well, good night, everyone, and we'll speak to you again next week. All right, catch you later. <laughs>